Section 33 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 2. The Coming of Bonaparte. Part 2. It was classic to attack the empire in Italy. Over and over again we have seen the French armies take that road, invade Lombardy. But now the aim at least was different, more precise. The French Revolution was nourished on Roman history. It was Danton who first, reviving that old dream of Richelieu's, had answered the invasion of France by a coalition of kings, with the assertion of his country's right to have her natural frontiers, that is to say, the limits of Gaul, the sea, the ocean, the Pyrenees, the Alps, and the Rhine. In 1792 the Executive Council had assigned the Rhine as the boundary of the Republic, and now these natural frontiers were a word to conjure with. No Frenchman would have less. Belgium, Savoy, Alsace were necessaries of life. And Bonaparte remembered Cisalpine Gaul. He would not only vanquish Austria, but create an allied republic in Lombardy to protect Savoy, Another in Holland would ensure the safety of Belgium. The great idea of Bonaparte, which he had received from the men of the mountain, was to recover for the Republic l'héritage des Gaulois, the full inheritance of Gaul. The wonderful thing is that he did it in a few weeks. Who can read without emotion the series of his bulletins from Lombardy? The campaign in Italy began on the 10th of April, 1796. Napoleon proclaims from the summit of the Alps, Soldiers, you are naked, half-starved. The government owes you much and can give you nothing. Your patience, your courage in the midst of these rocks are splendid, but will get you no glory. I will lead you into the most fertile plains in the world. Rich provinces, great cities shall fall into your hands. Soldiers of Italy, do you lack the courage or the constancy to conquer them? Another bulletin is dated the 26th. Soldiers, in fifteen days you have gained half a dozen victories. You have taken one and twenty flags, fifty-five cannon, and several fortresses. You have conquered the richest territory in Piedmont, made fifteen thousand prisoners. You have killed or wounded ten thousand of the enemy. But soldiers, you have done nothing since you have still so much to do. As yet, we possess neither Milan nor Turin. Three weeks later, he writes to Carnot, The Battle of Lodi gives Lombardy to the Republic. You may consider me at Milan. One more move on this marvellous chessboard, and there he was. The neat dispatches dated, From our general headquarters at Milan, Cinq Pré-Réal en Quatre, 24th of May, 1796. In those incoherent reminiscences and notes which Stendhal chose to entitle The Life of Napoleon, we find a living picture of the French occupation of Milan. Youth, glory, hope, joy, enthusiasm, beauty compose its colors. General Bonaparte was twenty-sixth, and he was one of the oldest of us, says Stendhal. Never was an army so young or so gay, Never was an army so ragged or so poor, so enchanted with a pair of new boots or a suit of clean linen. 
when the wealth of Lombardy began to roll into those empty pockets. The general had sent for his bride and his sisters, who reigned at Montebello and at the Palazzo Servoloni. But his young officers were dazzled by the high combs, the lace mantillas, the dark eyes, the mysterious insinuating smile of the ladies of Lombardy, who, in hatred of the Austrians, received their invaders with open arms. Those were days of love and war. At the entry of the French into Milan, the whole populace shouted one immense Eviva. All the lovely Lombard ladies were on their balconies, showering roses and kisses. Beyond the Spanish ramparts of the city, the plain in its fresh green stretched out for leagues, so covered with trees it appeared a forest, and in the distance the chain of the Alps, glittering with snow from Monte Viso to Monte Rosa, reared their sparkling summits in the hot blue sky. Rising out of the gardens near at hand, the lacy whiteness of the cathedral's marble dome appeared a reflection of that alpine splendor. The spring of 1796 was the romance of the revolution. The hour and the man had met. Marat's military tribune, the grand homme whom the Jacobins had prophesied, whose advent would bring le bonheur au monde, had appeared on the scene. Bonaparte occupied the horizons of Europe. The Republic of Lombardy soared into freedom and happiness without a struggle. Everywhere the Austrians were put to flight. The campaign of Rivoli lasted just four days. On the evening that followed the victory, one of the French generals, faint with fatigue, came up to Bonaparte. Napoleon pointed to a great heap of Austrian flags which were being brought in from every quarter and flung down at his feet. Make your bed there, La Salle, he said, and rest. You have earned it. And the tired hero slept on his bed of trophies. But Bonaparte seemed never to rest from victory. Meanwhile in France another new constitution had changed in some respects the form of government. There was a chamber called the Five Hundred, there was a Senate, the Conseil des Anciens, and a supreme board of five pentarchs united in a directory. Such was the body of the last revolutionary constitution. It had no soul. While the armies breathed youth, joy, and heroism, the civil state seemed in a condition of collapse. General indifference attended its transactions. The taxes brought in nothing to the empty treasury. The Assignans had reached their lowest depth. If we open some old account book of the period, the prices fill us with amazement. Bread is sixty francs a pound. White beans, fourteen hundred francs the bushel. In paper money, of course. Any other sort is scarce and most remunerative to its possessor. The Louis d'Or of four and twenty francs is worth twelve thousand francs in Assignons. Such was the condition of France after eight years of revolution when Bonaparte began to send his millions of Italian gold to Paris. War indemnity squeezed from Parma and Piacenza. English booty snatched from the harbor of Legorne. Pictures and provinces wrung from the Pope. After Mantua, he sent thirty millions of francs in gold to the Minister of Finance in Rome, pour le soulagement du trésor public enriched the museums of the capital with more than three hundred masterpieces, 
which it had taken thirty centuries to produce, flew the French colours on the borders of the Adriatic, established two republics, filials of France, across the Alps, and brought into the French alliance Parma, Sardinia, Naples, and the Pope. The Treaty of Campo Formio, 1797, showed Austria vanquished, and flattered the passionate opposition of the French to the hated nation. For the France of the Revolution, which in more things than one returned to the traditions of Louis the Fourteenth, believed that France should never be free while Austria was prosperous. At Campo Formio, Austria, sorely against her will, accepted the new doctrine of the natural frontiers. The left bank of the Rhine and Belgium, which the victorious armies of the Republic held in their possession, and acknowledged the Republic of Lombardy. But Bonaparte had to grant the Emperor something in exchange. I think that which he sacrificed was his honour. He offered up unoffending Venice. He took what lay readiest to his hand without thought of right or wrong. Here we catch the first peep of the Corsican ogre familiar to our fathers, of that Napoleon who, in 1799, will massacre twelve hundred Turkish prisoners at Jaffa, though they surrender to his parole, because he has no means of feeding or guarding them, who in 1804 will assassinate the Duke of Enghien, who, during the terrible stampede of the retreat from Russia, will abandon his wounded, the Napoleon who frankly owned one day to Josephine, les lois de morale et de convenance ne peuvent être faites pour moi, on this occasion he quietly wrote to the directory, Venise payera le Rhin, and all parties except Venice appeared satisfied with the transaction. Bonaparte reigned in Italy. When he returned to France, covered with laurels, followed by the train of his spoils and conquests, it was evident that the victorious general, although no member of the government, was the only popular potentate in France the directory whose existence he had assured, whose means of livelihood he had supplied, looked askance at this too brilliant benefactor. But Bonaparte did not yet wish to reign. The pear was not yet ripe. England had not made peace. End of section 33